This is an ABC podcast. Good plan. Good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am so thrilled to be back with my lockdown ladies for the Sanctum Sisters Revival Tribute Hour. I am your host, Emma Race, and I promise I will let my co-hosts introduce themselves, but not until I first get my Tony Barber, Soul of the Century style introductions on. And we're going to welcome them through a who am I question. Please do not introduce yourself until I have completed the clues. I only have sisters and I get drunk easily on one homemade Friday night cocktail. I'm a self-declared anarchist who enjoys the musical stylings of Andrew Lloyd Webber. I have been cited by both Darcy Messio and Daisy Pierce as a hero of theirs, a coach, a defender and a mother. My name rhymes with Peculiar Kiera. <laughs> I am? Oh, I think that's me. Julia Kiera. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> okay, question number two. Of the many TV roles that I have had, one of my earliest was as a saucy backup singer on a prominent 1990s sports entertainment show. My friends know me as the Velvet Sledgehammer, Queen of Karaoke and a germaphobe who was hoarding toilet paper and being scared of germs way before COVID made it cool. I'm Football <laughs> Woman of the Year. I am... Shelly Ware. Yay! <laughs> okay, for a process of elimination, there's only one to go, so we're going to switch to a fast money round. And you must answer in full first and surname, even if it's in the third person. Hands on the buzzer, final person. Who had a photo of former Hawthorne and St Kilda Premiership player Russell Green in the locket they wore around their neck as a I am Lucy Race. (laughs) (laughs) Who had a perm and an oversized teddy bear called Scruffy who wore a Hawthorne jumper? I am also Lucy Race. (laughs) When we were growing up, who would always sit closest to the hot tap to protect their little sisters? Beep. That would be Lucy Race. (laughs) Ah, the podcast this week is... Lucy Race. Ah, just make you talk about yourself in the third like four times. What a week. <laughs> Hello, my lovely ladies. How are you? I feel like there's spring is on in the air. The finals are upon us. It will be a TV viewing spectacle only for us. How are you feeling and what have been any highlights that you would like to share with us this week? I'm going to start with you, Julia. Oh, well, I'm doing well. A highlight has been a slight lift in uh, lockdown. Slight, slight lift in lockdown. I'm looking forward to some pizza in the park with friends this week. Yeah, we're, we're just... Looking forward to the weekend with some finals and hopefully some cracking footy. I'm going to come to you next, Shelley. I want to know what has been a highlight, if there has been one, and whether or not you like the buy round. I do like the buy round because it gives us all a break and I think it helps people that are injured get back into it and get excited about it. A lot say it breaks the momentum, but I don't mind the buy round. And Lucy Race, what are you preparing to celebrate finals? How will you make it special for you and your kinfolk? I'm not, I haven't actually really thought about that. I'm really excited the finals 
are on. I have to say I found the Festival of Footy hard. I didn't enjoy it as much as I would. And I've actually really loved, I'm probably being a bit serious here, but I really loved the buy. I felt like I needed it. I think what I've realized is that I'm not finding football fully satisfying at the moment. And I've kind of been feeling guilty about that. And then I learned something this week. I learned about ambiguous loss. And that is losses that lack, I guess, clarity or definition. It's, you know, different to when you can point to something and say someone died and that's why I'm feeling sad. And I think for me, it's been the lack of social connections that I usually get through football and the loss of normality. And so for me, the finals are kind of feeling bittersweet. I'm really happy that they're happening. I know I'll enjoy watching them and I'm really happy for the fans in other states. But on another level, they're a real reminder or an illustration of, I guess, a lot of the things that we've lost, especially in Victoria. So I'm just hoping people can keep that in mind when you hear somebody, potentially someone, particularly someone from Victoria, saying that they're feeling sad about the grand final not being in Melbourne because it's actually about more than football. It's a really good point and you may have just stolen one of my melee topics, which I'll deal with that later. But if you're going to talk about ambiguous loss, I'm going to talk about ambiguous wins, things that you saw that you didn't know you needed to see. I saw something this week and it warmed the cockles of my heart. History was made when uh, there was a game in the NFL and there was two female coaches and one female um, official, so umpire. So there was three women who were really heading up that game that happened, it was a historic moment and it was amazing. But I'm just going to read it again. So history was made with the first game in the NFL with two female coaches and one female official. I was happy for a while until I looked at those numbers. I was like, just the two and (laughs) the one. But we've got a way to go. But it was an ambiguous win because I didn't know I needed to see it. And when I saw it, I lifted my spirits and I thought, I know the NFL has been way behind a lot of other codes. And so I felt like that was a bit of a moment and a bit of a win. We've got finals ahead of us. Do we want to just have a quick jump in and preview the games that are coming up? Because they kick off Thursday night, so that is tomorrow night. And the first will be Port versus Cats. There's been a lot of conversation about Port have been the latter leaders all year, pretty much. And maybe they were all year. Is that correct? Can I get a thumbs up? Someone can correct us on the interwebs. But the Cats have also just been dominant. So who would like to give us their thoughts on this? Julia? Yeah, well, this is... Thursday night at Adelaide Oval, love football at Adelaide Oval. This is tantalising because, yeah, Port have been dominant all season, but when they played Geelong uh, about six weeks ago, Geelong pumped them by 10 goals. So this is a really interesting battle now. During that game, Hawkins kicked six goals and Dixon was really quiet for, for Port. So it'll be interesting if that kind of plays out again. We know Hawkins has been really consistent all year. He's won the Coleman. For me, the highlight of this game, though, and you've got to go with me, is that when I don't have a vested interest in a game because I don't go for other of the teams, I just love to listen to the commentary through a homoerotic lens and there is no greater example when hearing male commentators talk about the strong hands of Tom Hawkins and Charlie Dixon and the throbbing midfield of Selwood, Grey, Dangerfield, Boak. Um, I'll be playing a drinking game, I guess, on Thursday with any time that they say something that could be kind of segued into it, that's what he or she said. I hope it's really um, slippery. (laughs) Well, now that we 
we know what lens you'll be watching it through. Enjoy and have a really fruitful Thursday night there, Julia. Friday is a challenge for me because it's the lions v the tigers and I'm yet to work out which animal is which. So that's why we're <laughs> previewing this game. Yes, yeah, so I sit by the hot tap and I also take over any lions versus tigers issues for the family. I'll be going for a rated G night at the Gabba. Going on history, Richmond really have the lions measure. So the tigers have won the past 15 games against Brisbane, including this particular final last year. When they met in round 10, the Tigers won by 41. But do you remember how badly the Lions kicked that night? It was, I think, 12-10 to 4-17. So in terms of scoring shots, you know what they say, bad kicking's bad football. I... I'm looking forward to seeing Lockie Neal, who took out the AFL Coaches Association Player of the Year this week. In terms of Brisbane, I'm pretty sure they'll have Harris Andrew back. Harris Andrew, Andrew Harris. Harris I love I love two names that could be first names or surnames. He is a great defender and I think they will be very happy to have him back. Tom Lynch won't be playing. He's going to need another week. And there's a chance that Prestia and Shea Bolton will be back and maybe Josh Caddy for the Tigers. So Lions and Tigers for me always feels very gladiatorial. And I'm hoping, again, because I don't go for either of these teams, that it is really close and exciting. And I will also be looking forward to seeing my football dad, Chris Fagan, sitting on the bench. I think that's creepier than what Julia said. My football dad's <laughs> creepy. I love Chris Fagan. He's probably no, not old no. enough to be my dad. No. I'm going to cover the St Kilda Bulldogs game, which I'm choosing to call the Nathan Burke Sophie's Choice Cup. Ooh. It's a real tricky one for him, a real sticky one. I actually even reached out to get a comment from him, but apparently he's not taking comments, uh, he's not giving comments to the media at this time on <laughs> who he will be supporting. So um, I'll let you know if I get any, anything back. Last time they met, you may remember that St Kilda almost doubled the Western Bulldogs score. I think that um, the Western Bulldogs midfield is pretty strong. When you look at Bont and Liber and Smith and Hunter and they do have experience in finals much more recently I think they're a really powerful midfield but I think St Kilda's midfield if they're on fire can actually take it to them but they need to be ready to run out they need to be ready to go from the first bounce the weak link in the chain is the Western Bulldogs defense and if St Kilda just get it inside 50 and have accurate kicking I think we've got a real game on our hands the thing that I'm really interested to see without putting too much pressure on one single person is I think this is the reason why that Dan Hanabry was brought to St Kilda (laughs) and I think it's time for him to you know show us what he's made of and I think he could be a massive game changer just as a little side note you'll remember or listeners to the pod will remember earlier this year we paid tribute to one of my best friends Cara who died she she was a sainter I feel like this season has been sent from the footy gods above, Mm -hmm. which are the gods that she believed in. And so I am barracking so hard for St Kilda in this finals series in lieu of the fact that we haven't been able to have a funeral to pay tribute to my friend Cara. I feel like the Saints have got it covered for me this year. So I am barracking really, really hard and also uh, for Brett Ratton because I just adore the man. Um, Shelley, you must have a soft spot for Brett Ratton. I do love Brett Ratton. He's a ripper. I miss him at the Blues and I um, wish him well, absolutely. 
when this is all over, we should have him around for a barbecue. You've got eagles and pies. <laughs> You've got the two, I hate to say it, but I do think of the eagles and the pies as the two evil superpowers. Yes. Well, I'm going to be watching the games exactly as Julia is watching that game on um, Thursday night. I'm going to watch them all like that because my blues are out. Yeah, They're all evil superpowers to me at the moment, Em. But West Coast, they had a lot of injuries and they're looking to get them back, except it looks like Elliot Yo. well, we know Elliot Yo won't be there, so he'll be a huge loss for the finals. And if McGovern and Kennedy don't play, that certainly is going to change a few things for them as well. The Pies have come off that loss to Port Adelaide, which hurt them. And if they can possibly get their over handballing under control, they might have a good chance of winning this. Now, they're both really good at defence, but I think it's going to be one in the midfield, depending whether the first time All-Australian, congratulations, Taylor Adams, Trelaw and Pendlebury can stop the run of Kelly, Shuey and Gaff, or vice versa, whichever way you want things to happen, that'll be the key. So Brody Grundy, he hasn't had um, the All-Australian year that this young man normally has had. So it'll be tough for him to come up against the best ruck at the moment um, in Nick Nat. But West Coast home ground advantage. Now, we haven't got to say that very often this year, have we, girls? <laughs> so I'm going with West Coast, I think, for this one. We'll see how we go. Any comment on what's been said about how West Coast will have to quarantine for 14 days because they've been playing against the Dirty Pies who've only had seven days quarantine? <laughs> I mean, should we, call the, should we call the pies the wear your thongs in the shower pies? I don't need that visual, so no, I will not be using and calling them that moving forward. But I was amused by Nathan Buckley's um, response to that in saying that you're just trying to call us Dirty Pies and um, thought that was very, very clever. So no response. It is what it is. Mm. They are dirty. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no response. Confirmation. Yeah, feel. <laughs> all right. We've all got the giggles. Let's roll up our sleeves and melee ladies. We're going to start with uh, new beginnings before we get to some delisting conversations. Julia, the AFLW news has been actually hitting, like there's been a lot of AFLW news, a lot of this courtesy of Sarah Black, who is just sitting at her printing press and her little arm must be about to fall oh, off. No. She's writing so many stories at the moment. What AFLW news can you give us? Well, yes, thank you for name checking Sarah Black because she is doing a mountain of work and we know that there are so many staff that have been stood down and she's probably carrying the baton with regards to that. So the first time this year the AFLW draft will be in the evening. Um, There is an obsession with evening events, it seems. Next Tuesday, October the 6th, it's a state-based draft, as it's always been, so players have to nominate their state. It will be an incredibly interesting year to see how Victorian talent is drafted. For anyone who's not aware, there have been tighter COVID restrictions in Victoria than the rest (laughs) of the country. So even though uh, a lot of those state leagues had pauses in the middle of the year, they've still been able to play grand final finals have happened for the state leagues they've been able to have some exhibition matches there's a couple more to go as well around the state leagues for uh, the top age talent and also the overage talent to play against each other so clubs that are outside Victoria have had an opportunity to see this year what they're um, going to pick up whereas in Victoria it's a bit more speculative even with the combine players have to just record a 2k and send it in uh, whereas uh, in other states they're, they're actually doing kind of mini combines uh, that are state-based so Julia, 
Actually, that's really interesting because I think that we've heard previously that that is a barrier for Indigenous players being looked at because they have to have played in an affiliated club to be able to qualify. Is it potential that this pivoting that's had to happen because of COVID might open the door to new ways of recruiting that we might see more Indigenous women playing in the AFLW down the track if we can show precedent? Well, you would hope so. And even just the fact that because of this year there's been no under-18s championship, they've done state-based exhibition games and so in the NT there was an opportunity for two teams full of players to actually play against each other as opposed to just having an NT team that would have to one NT team that would have to travel around so I think yes possibly there's there's more opportunity even with the way they've had to look at getting the combine data yeah I, I do think you can't really replace just football being able to play football at the highest level and you know have what had happened in previous years with girls playing with NT Thunder and joining in with the VFLW like that hasn't really happened so yes I think there's an opportunity to just see the players and get their data is is there but actually playing at the highest level I don't know how you can replace that that's where so much of the development happens in terms of who's actually going to get picked up the Victorian scouts there's so many Victorian picks that needs to go so there's a lot of speculation that needs to happen so it'll be interesting how that plays out I know that the staff have been a lot of staff have been let go or stood down and they're still getting calls about their opinions about girls that they haven't seen in real life since March so it'll be interesting my pick is Al McKenzie will go pick one but we'll see how that plays out. Have you got any update? We saw that the West Coast AFLW coach is no longer coaching that team. Do you have any update on that? No, I don't. It's And the statement made it sound like it was, you know, because of the COVID landscape and that the um, position was part-time and it, it, it not working out for Luke Dwyer's life. So we'll see. It's very late <laughs> to be having a change of coaching. I don't know if Richmond have appointed their coach yet. So you know, when you're going into the draft without a head coach, it, it throws up a lot of questions, especially mm. if you've got a list manager doing the recruitment, but then you get a coach in who has a whole different kind of game style in mind and they haven't picked the players to play that kind of style. Just a reminder that Michelle Cowan is at the West Coast Eagles on the coaching staff, has some experience. Maybe they could. I think what's seen as best practice right now is to just give it to a guy in the men's footy department who's got a spare I'm two hours a week. Off. I'm cutting you off there, Julia. Feels like that. Feels like it. From new beginnings, we're going to go to Fond Farewells. Shelley, you did a deep dive this week into how players transition out of playing AFL. We saw a massive machete went through and so many players were cut from North Melbourne, an unprecedented kind of 11. Was it 11? It's almost a whole team. Mm, um yeah. And you actually contacted the Players Association to find out how players transition out of footy. I didn't know half these things were available. Can you kind of tell us about the ways that they're supported when they leave football? Yeah, well, I didn't know either. And for many years I've watched a lot of footballers that have become friends sort of, you know, not really cope that well with transition. So I sort of hoped that there was something more going on. We've talked about there being more of an improvement and it was great to see that there is an improvement in this space. They basically take transition now as something that happens from the moment they start football. So they start talking to them about it from that very first day. They will have a meeting with them one-on-one. They'll talk about ways that they can, or they have a formal induction essentially. Then they focus on opportunities for them and not just putting all their eggs in one basket in AFL, but providing training opportunities. And they're given grants for that. They set up all sorts of things now with their finances for when they leave 
the AFL. The support is quite amazing, actually. So when they do get to that final stage of transitioning out, they do again have that one-on-one and say, we're here for what you need. How do you want this to happen? Not this is what's going to happen. It's more about what the player needs. So there's a lot of change and it's been great to see. So they support them with like business planning, education, finance, but do they also support them with emotional and mental health? Yes, well, they have a um, psychologist network that are available to them of 120 psychologists and it's all confidential and that's during their, their time but potentially they're there for also after their time. At any given time, they said they have 80-year-olds that are accessing this and needing this. So it's it's forever. There's 5,000 um, registered past players. So they've got a lot of effort and they've got $4 million a year to provide players with a financial break for medical support, you know, an operation that might be needed. They're 100% getting better. They know that they're still growing in this space as well. And they provide at the end, they have a three-year camp that happens with a transitional camp where they go and they talk about things that they might actually, you know, the little bumps in the road that we all face when we change something in our lives, those major things that happen. So they talk to them about the challenges and then they have a job fair. It's straight away. The job fair is, and they said that they've had people leave there with a job. One of the interesting things that um, Paul Marsh talked about was that and it was actually, Julia, I asked you, um, I asked my beautiful girls from the Outer Sanctum what questions we might like to ask. And Julia, you touched on wanting to know about how COVID had, had impacted their needs, like what they were doing. And they said that they had, of course, been hit harder by the players. But one of the things that's really difficult for the players, and it's what you touched on, Julia, teams aren't playing footy. So there's no opportunity for them to go and do their normal thing that they, a lot of them think they're going to do of joining in, you know, with the state and country leagues. That's not available to them. And in some ways it's good because that can prolong their life into their next stage of transition. So it's good for them to just probably go straight into their next phase of life. One of the things I saw in your piece, Shelley, was that Paul Marsh said that players and their families can reach out to the AFLPA. And I thought that was a great option for partners and other family members who find this really tricky because you know you don't play sport in a bubble you're part of a family you've got other people who are being impacted by all of this especially if you know you have to change states and I thought that was fantastic did you know that yeah I knew I knew that it was just players and that's actually bothered me for a long time this is a new change because for a really long time it was just players and if you're in a state of depression and, and you're in a state of needing help, it's really difficult for you to know that you need the help and that it's time for you to reach out. So the fact that they have changed this in recent times that families can now reach out, it's pretty special. It's what's needed. I think the role of families in the whole process is underappreciated, especially when we're talking about the identity. So the identity of a, of a footballer, that that's what they're known to be good at. That might be the thing that they have always been the best at. And as a result, through their high school years, that's where all their energy goes and they might not develop other interests or other strengths. They might neglect their studies. And so then when they get into the football system, it, it becomes more and more like that, that, that. That's all you're seen as, as a footballer. And so once they retire, that sense of, well, who am I now is really lost. But I think I think families play a really important part in supporting the player to be a well-rounded person, to have other interests, and to not just talk about football. You know, it was something I saw when I worked for an AFLW team was that often players would go home and their family would just ask them constantly about what happened at training um, and would critique the game with them, critique their stats. And every conversation was just 
around football and all those other interests of life were neglected. And so I think that families can play a big role of helping keep perspective that whole time. Yep, footy is one part of your life. It's great that you're really good at footy, but you're also really good at all these different other things. We have a relationship with you that isn't just football-based. And so then when football's gone and that big piece of your life is is suddenly missing, that all the other interests that you've cultivated over time can fill it up. Absolutely. And that was something that he talked about was that loss of identity, but they from the start of their football career now, that's something they're focusing on. And I knew something had changed because I work with Neville Jetta at, at Parade College looking after the 25 Aboriginal boys, and he's been doing that for three years. And the footballers of the past, that wasn't even an option. So I knew something had changed in the last three years, and I was like, what's going on? So that's why I wanted to speak to him. And does it cross over with, I know that there's the Indigenous Past Players Association. I don't know if that's if it does the same thing or if it's just another level of support that's offered. Yeah, it's another level of support, and I do believe that they work closely together is my understanding. I'll have to do another article now and find you out. You will, and also find <laughs> out how AFLW players are supported when they have That'll to. happen. That'll happen in the AFLW season, don't you? You worry. <laughs> um, Lucy Race, there was you love when theatre and sport intersect, and there was a big story this week. I'm going to let you tell it. Yes, so I do love that. I did love there was a video from the Queensland Ballet who made a pitch to be part of the AFL Grand Final, which we shared on our Facebook last week, and you guys all loved that. So that was a positive story. A less positive story kind of came to be known when Christy Whelan, who is a performer, tweeted on the weekend about dancers being asked by a choreographer to dance for free at the AFL Grand Final. And this ended up becoming a big story. It made it onto the project where Sam Gaskin from the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance said that the AFL Grand Final is known as a big gig for many professional dancers. I feel like it's a real representation of what we do and don't value in this country. So the AFL moved fairly quickly to clarify that the that professional dancers weren't being asked to work for free, rather that the choreographer was seeking dancers from dance schools and other movement groups to take part in the mass activation. And that's something that we've seen over the years, lots of events, including the T20 final earlier this year, which relied on lots of young amateur dancers from dance schools to fill the MCG alongside professional dancers. So it does seem like the brief may have accidentally been sent much more widely to professional dancers and that led to some confusion but the brief did say and I'm quoting here for this large-scale performance to take place we're seeking strong performers who are 15 years and over to take part as volunteer performers and the reaction has been big it's very rare that I find in my musical theatre world that there's a lot of talk about football. Can you say your stage mum world? (laughs) Stage mum world yes so (laughs) It's very rare for one particular member of my family to come and talk to me about football, but he was doing that. So the reaction by all of these artists got me thinking and absolutely professional artists should be paid for their work. So often artists are asked to perform for free. You know, that's something that we're all very aware of. It's not right to be paid in exposure because you can't pay your rent with exposure. And the costs associated with, you know, lessons like dance lessons is so high. As a parent who's had kids go through dance and kids go through sport, the cost differential is enormous. It's unbelievable. And the hours that are required required for dancers are on a par with elite athletes and that's for 15 year olds that's you know something that they they really do have to put in so much work but I also think it's worth noting how for artists in Australia they've 
pretty much lost a year's work and they were the first to lose jobs under co- you know through covid and they'll be the last to come back they've really fallen through the gaps in terms of a lot of the financial support that's been available and when you see and i think what happened is for this group of people they were comparing themselves to the way that elite male sport has been able to find a way and there is a difference to how we value sport over art in some respects i think emma you coined a good phrase the other day do you want to share it with us well i said we've always had the brassy line which is what we're we're on the wrong side of the brassy line right now because we can't get out of our side of the line to get to finals. But there is also the Barishnikov line, which is <laughs> somewhere between people who like the arts and people who like footy. And, and I can see why there was such an uproar because we've had state and local and federal governments supporting sport to get back up on its feet and then sport couldn't throw a hand down to help the arts get back up on theirs and were asking them to work for free. And, and I think that in this climate, that's a very dangerous thing to do, regardless of how much exposure and how lovely it would be to dance on the Gabba. And look, I think, you know, what it's pointing to is, you know, there is a there is a big divide, not necessarily just between art and sport, but also how people, are, you know, what has COVID wrought for all of us? And we are really thinking about that. That's something that's very top of mind for a lot of people in the country. I think as a sporting organisation or an entertainment organisation, you also need to be thinking when you've got a national audience, how are you balancing those two potentially, you know, different groups of people? To be honest, I'm shocked at the idea that you could have a couple of hundred people together dancing together. That's <laughs> so outside of what seems normal to me at the moment. I did see this week that Mike Brady will be singing up there Kazali from an empty MCG, and that's going to kind of sum it up. That's going to crush my soul seeing that. <laughs> it'll be bittersweet it's gonna be very bittersweet i did not realize that it was from the empty mcg well he can't travel he's he's in a bubble right oh Oh, just put him in a room (laughs) lucy you make such a good point about the arts and the kind of the lo- the longing that we have as well for wishing that we could get outside our five kilometres to get on a plane. And mm-hmm. this is how Victorians, any Victorians who are actually travelling to try and get to um, Queensland for the finals, I spoke to one this week. This is what you had to do. You had to fly to the Northern Territory from Victoria and then you had to quarantine in the Northern Territory for 14 days and then you can fly from the Northern Territory to Queensland and you don't have to quarantine. So there's a bunch of supporters up there who've been sitting by waiting, watching the clock wow. until they can. I'm sure they're enjoying the sights and sounds and weather of the Northern Territory as well. But it's Can you really- enjoy the sights and sounds if you're? in quarantine from your balcony apparently balcony and have I think you get a 40 minute window to use the pool by yourself like for one one turn in 14 days or something so anyway that's what they've been doing for the rest of us we are in our for the Victorians that is who are, who are still locked in our five kilometer bubble it's a real consideration because we can't even get together on grand final day potentially and one of our listeners Sophie McKinnon has written a beautiful piece and she sent it to me and I think that she's using art and writing to satiate her desire to be involved in football at the moment to be back doing what she loves as a footy fan and I'm going to read some excerpts from this now because um, she shared it with us and I think this is kind of a shout out to our Victorian kin. It's called Grand Final Weather. It is windless and the rain drips down with quite regularity. It'll be 11 degrees today. You know the song. It's the 25th of September and it's Grand Final Weather. This day has Grand Final stamped all over it. 
but there is no grand final. Grand final day is an ending and a beginning all at once. The reward of slogging it out another Melbourne winter. No boots after grand final day. That's the motto of one of my friends. For some, it's trudging through to the G through the mud of Gosh's Paddock or the civilised streets of East Melbourne. A confession. I barrack for Melbourne and I'm younger than 70, so grand finals are a true spectator sport for me. It's the roar of the crowd. It's the roar of the fire. It's a realisation that it may not be a great game, not one of the great grand finals. The margin stretches out, the legs stretch out on the sofa. Or it's a nail biter and we all hunt around the screen. Others can't bear the tension and find something else to do. A kid is doing Lego under the table. Others are bench wiping, scrubbing away the agony. I can't watch, says mum. Kids migrate to the garden and practice speckies on each other, complete with fake crowd noises. It's the memory of great-grand finals past that colour this grey day. In 1993, where I had to drink every time my player had a touch and from the hat I drew Michael Long and they made me drink every time he took a bounce as he made his graceful way up and down the ground that day. Norm Smith medalist. And remembering the grand final days away in a hot hotel bar in North Queensland full of rugby league fans looking sideways in a dingy London pub hearing the language of your home almost sobbing when someone shouted, he didn't have it you white maggot. And if you live within 5Ks of the G, you'd hear the roar a beat later than on the telly. Feels like it's almost a seismic thing. And here we are in late September, adrift. The game is somewhere else, but that's not the greatest wound. We cannot rally a gang to come over to ours. We cannot pile in the car with a Tupperware or two and head to a friend's house. We cannot draw in close with our people to watch our game together. Give me 100,000 rabid Victorians at the G whose collective bellow stirs the blood of a whole state. Give me love. Give me meat pies and crap weather and armchair philosophy. Some young bloke or some old bloke playing out of his skin. Some warrior tagged to death. A player who hangs in the air gripping the ball and a collective grasp of the crowd. Give me a nail biter or a fait accompli. Give me a granny of old as I'm missing the one day in September to the point my Melbourne heart hurts. Wow. <laughs> did she just speak that yeah. truth? Yeah. She really did. And it's such a beautiful thing when sport and art collide because sport means so much to us and it's visceral and it's not just sport. It's connection and it's people and it's relationships and it's a marking of the time. Artists are very well placed to reflect that back to us. Mm. They sure are. It's only been an art form for us this year. We've not had the visceral experience. It's just been what we've seen on the screen and it hasn't been enough for me, but moments like listening to someone write about it has been. Nicole Hayes has a beautiful story for us today from Grassroots Footy and it's been a while since we've had a story like this. Uh, My name is Sarah Lowe and I'm the Chief Executive Officer for the South Metro Junior Football League. South Metro Junior Football League is is actually the the biggest um, junior independent sporting organisation in the country. So we have over 11,000 kids that that play in our league in a a region that crosses over six councils in the southeast. So we're also the the largest employer of umpires in, in the country. So we have over 724 umpires the high percentage of them are under 18. In essence, my role is to administer um, uh, the local football competition in the region and create the pathways for kids 
either going into uh, the, the VFL or VFLW or AFL, AFLW system um, or, or into senior football, either in coaching, playing or umpiring. All of that sounds like a very full-on job, but this year in 2020 with a lockdown, I imagine that's quite a different job at the moment. How has that changed for you this year? Yeah, I won't be too cliche with unprecedented and the word challenging year. Uh, I think they're probably the two most used words, but it's it's definitely been that. And, uh, you know, I think we, uh, interesting, I just did a presentation to the board last night because our financial year finishes in October. So we do a reflection at the end of every year. So we did it a bit earlier this month. And just this, you know, starting off from, from November at the end of last year, who would have thought with all our budgeting and planning and then December with the first case in, you know, in Wuhan, and you know there was talk about a pandemic and then all of a sudden January February so we were quite ahead of the game we'd actually produced a pandemic plan um, pretty much that week prior to the lockdown when we started to get word about it in March and and we're a very I suppose innovative organization where we really use technology to our advantage so we've been using technology like Zoom and Teams you know all, all the staff have got laptops so we were quite mobile from our office space to be able to to get the staff uh, responding quite quickly. It's definitely been challenging. When, when you're the biggest league, you know, that's 11,000 kids you've got responsibility for. There's over 30,000 volunteers. You know, the ability to communicate with our clubs because the people we represent are the kids. So you're trying to keep them engaged, keep them focused. And then you've got the clubs that are, you know, they're all parents. So they're doing it for the benefit of their kids. And, and I think if everyone reflects back now, back in March, I think everyone was in such a panic state you know, we really didn't know enough about the virus <clears throat> and, and also this ability to work with the AFL um, and also with government. You know, people were, were very focused on the actual virus and what do we have to do? So there probably wasn't a lot of focus in relation to a return to play or community football. So there was a lot happening and our season traditionally starts in April. So we had to postpone the season in April uh, and then we went, you know, there was lockdown at that time. We fought really, really hard to, to get a voice amongst the government and and then it was really taking the journey and working with the AFL and with the government to be able to get those return to train protocols and return to play protocols. So we had really kept the hope up and planned for a season to start in July. Three days out before our season, on the 7th of July, the numbers were, were at about 400. And then, you know, I think when we cancelled the season three days out before the season started, I think those numbers had escalated to 500, 600s and the 700s that we saw. So one of the most difficult things we've ever had to do in the whole entire history, we've never had a disrupted season or a cancelled season. But we're really grateful for that six-week period where... You know, prior to that second lockdown, the kids got to train. You know, that's priceless. The, the feedback we've had from the clubs and the parents and the kids, that six weeks, they just hold on to that. You know, the mental health has been a big thing for the kids and for the parents. So we, we've had to engage in different ways. We, we've done, we've created our own little podcast, not as fancy as the Outer Sanctum podcast, and, and really kept the social media up. I just wanted to come back a little bit to your story. It will sound familiar to a lot of migrant families, I think. Do you want to tell us a little bit about one sort of your engagement with sport, but also why in the end it was footy that you settled on? Yeah, I, I mean, 1977 in January, uh, just I think we came about a week before Australia Day. That wasn't planned. My parents decided to migrate to Australia and it was really based on, on my mum's experience as a, a young 17, 18-year-old who was really fortunate to win the, the one of the Commonwealth scholarships, which is the British Columbia scholarship that was between all the Commonwealth countries. And, you know, we're from Malaysia. We're Chinese Malaysians is our uh, background. Yeah, mum was really lucky to 
to win that scholarship and she spent three years studying in Melbourne at the Austin Hospital and you know and she made some wonderful friends and connections and just fell in love at Melbourne and and, and why wouldn't you mum and dad were actually engaged they didn't see each other for three years dad didn't want to come over he couldn't because there was no money in those days so the scholarship was all she lived off so after three years they got married and made my dad promise that if she were to marry him that she we would have to bring the kids up in Melbourne that was her dream it took him another 20 years before they could get back in the country but Melbourne is where we're based and mum and dad still live in Noble Park North in the southeast suburbs you know they still live 500 metres down the road from VFL Park and she's a great sports person and she just gave my two older brothers and myself and my dad some really great advice from the three years that she lived here which is we need to assimilate we're we're living here and we need to assimilate and, and, you know, Nicole, you've got to think about that. That's in 1977. There was a lot happening there. There wasn't, you know, a lot of Italians and Greeks had migrated here, but we're one of the first Chinese um, immigrants prior to the, the Vietnamese coming through through from the, the, you know, from the war and everything else back in the 80s. And, and mum just said, look, one thing I know about Australian and, and Victorians, they love sport. So we need to make friends and you should do that through sport. So, so dad took that literally. I think it took him six months, three jobs in a factory to get our first car. It was a third hand, I think, a Holden Kingswood station wagon. He took the advice of mum and we've got to be Australian. So we couldn't have been more Australian. And we used to play cricket. That was the year of World Series cricket that started. We used to be able to sneak in and watch the games at night. And then when it came to winter, we played footy. And when you've got two older brothers who are six and seven years older, they'd gone through school in Malaysia. I'd, I'd never um, gone to school. So I started my first schooling here in Australia. So I'm not going to make it sound like it was easy. It was a really difficult period. You know, the, the, the racism during that period of time, you'd have to imagine was quite incredible. We we did not see another Chinese or Asian person for a good five years. We, we were it. We'd get stared at all the time. There were so many things we weren't allowed to do. What we did was we had each other. And, and having two older brothers who just passionately loved sport, that was my saviour. You know, we were cricketers in summer and we were footballers in winter, but, you know, we're, we're very competitive and we could never barrack for the same teams. <laughs> so what do you think, Nicole? You tell me. My The older brother barracks for Geelong, the middle one barracks for Richmond, and I should have followed both of them. I barracked for St Kilda. So I think <laughs> I may have lost the bet. <laughs> so they've seen lots of premierships. Um, I'm still waiting. Uh, I still remember in, in grade one in, in the local primary school, and I was very good at football because, you know, I just love the sport. And, and I just thought anyone could play. And I always thought I'd play for St Kilda. And, and if I was playing, we would definitely win a premiership. And that was the dream. <laughs> so I still remember fondly talking to my uh, primary school teacher and all the female teachers saying, yeah, just, just ask the PE teacher to, to get onto the team. They didn't say get on the boys team. They just said get onto the footy team. And I still remember going to the, the staff room and, and, and asking uh, Mr Cummings. I still remember his name. And he, he literally just laughed and scoffed and said, it'll be over my dead body before a girl ever plays football on my team or ever will they ever play football and that has been embedded in my psyche since 1977 I I could have taken that as really disappointing which I did I cried but I thought you know what challenge accepted and that's what's driven me Nicole I've been so driven it took me to 2016 to finally crack into a football job And it wasn't from a lack of trying. This is my 32nd year in sport. You know, at the time, the AFL made a big story. Um, I was in their football record. I was in a whole lot of things. I've been asked to do a lot of media, a lot of podcasts, a lot of interviews, you know, being the first female CEO in the AFL system. I didn't even know that that was even a thing. You know, happy to to hold that flag. But at the same time, it's not something I think that that is a good thing either. So I, I carry that with 
pride. Um, you know, it's great to see so many more females and females have been in footy for so long. But I think to break those barriers, for me, it's not about being Asian or female, but those two things have become a really big thing with me having this job. Given that there's still such a long way to go, you know, we've seen some advances from the AFL, we've seen some advances at grassroots. People have identified this year as a potential for a reset rather than going back to normal, that we could create a new normal. Is there something at the top of the list you think that they need to deal with first if we did have that option? The, the numbers and the trends are showing us that girls are really only starting to play foot, football at about the age of 14. So is, is the market targeted marketing in the wrong area? That, that is only my region. I can't talk about the other regions, but we are the biggest and we happen to be in the centre of football world in the southeast suburbs, so but really the home of footy. So if we can't you know, get this going, um, it'll be difficult for everyone else. So I fear that there's a gap coming through. That's really, really important because the men's program has been going so long. So you've got this whole system of little boys who do Auskick who are desperate and dream to be AFL players. We're not quite seeing that in the young girls yet. Thank you so much for joining us on the Outer Sanctum. It's a real delight to meet you. I've heard a lot about you before now and, and it was just great to be able to actually get a chance to talk about what's happening in grassroots as well as you know your own personal story. So thank you so much, Sarah. My pleasure, Nicole. Thanks so much to Nicole Hayes for that beautiful story. It is time for the fifth quarter and it is with great apprehension. I pass the mic. Tess Armstrong. Now this is a story all about how footy season got flipped upside down and I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there, I'll tell you how the fifth quarter ended up right here. In East Melbourne Olympic Parade, Yarra Park was where I spent most of my days Chilling out, maxing, relaxing and free Kicking some footies outside the G When a couple of germs who were up to no good Started spreading COVID in my neighbourhood I got one little sniff and Gil got scared He said, we're moving the grand final and your team's to Queensland I whistled for a plane, but when I came near Every other Premier said, mate, you can't come here If anything, I can say this year has been rare Seeing people at the footy, it's just not fair I finish work in my house around 7 or 8 and I yell to the study, yo, see you tomorrow, walk to my couch, I am finally there, sit on my throne and watch the Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, Tess, <laughs> what a talent, what a, what a hidden talent you are. Well, yeah, I've realised um, I have been doing some wholesome looking through Spotify playlists of TV themes from the 90s and 2000s, as one is wont to do. How have you been? I've been very good. I need to I need to get this out and off my chest to the listeners because I've just been living in a huge amount of relief for two weeks because um, listeners who don't know I am pregnant, which is exciting, expecting my first child and an eye barrack for the tigers obviously, and my husband barracks for the cats. And so before we played the last time, I said to my partner, oh, what about if we bet the babies? <laughs> football love, uh, football team on tomorrow night's game. And the cats, I will say, were doing very well at that stage. And so it was a real, I was full of regret because I don't gamble and this is why, because I have absolutely no faith in my ability to pick a winner so I was like oh no this is terrible this is terrible but then of course the Tigers did it for me absolutely blitzed and so now I am thrilled because the baby is a tiger as (laughs) as it should be and um, now I can google like tiny little footy jumpers and tiny little footy shoes and stuff like that and get it ready for next year 
So the excitement. It's, it is. It's it's extremely exciting. We're all so happy. It's our first Sanctum baby <laughs> and uh, we can't wait for it to arrive sometime in March yes. next year. Just in time for the hopefully the AFL Women's Grand Final. Absolutely. So, hopefully I can watch it though. So don't um, try and work around me. That would be <laughs> I'll I'll have a word to Gil and to Nicole Livingston. So leave that leave that with me. Leave yep. that with me, and I'll leave the the baking of the baby to yep. you. Yeah, so deal. Tell me what you've been reading, listening to, watching to keep you occupied in the last couple of weeks. Well, I wanted to chat. I've actually been watching new things, but what I actually wanted to talk about was Enola Holmes, which is on Netflix. Mm. It's a film streaming on Netflix. Now, I saw a trailer for this a little while ago and thought, oh, I want to watch that. It's based on a short story or a series of stories by a person called Nancy Springer who created a whole character in the world of Sherlock Holmes, which was his little sister, called Enola. She doesn't really exist in the books. Played by Millie Bobby Brown, who I adore from Stranger Things. If you're a fan of Stranger Things, she's a little, little 11, who is now like a teenager, which is a bit wild, um, makes yep. me feel old. And her mum is played by Helena Bonham Carter. So it's an awesome mother-daughter casting. And the premise of the film essentially is that Helena Bonham Carter goes missing and Enola has to solve the mystery. And she does it in her own way and she needs to kind of outsmart her older brother, Sherlock Holmes, and her jerk older brother, Mycroft Holmes. One thing I think you'll laugh at, Kate, because when I found out we were doing the fifth quarter together, I said, oh, you'll love this. So the Conan Doyle estate filed a lawsuit against Netflix about this series. Now, the reason they filed (laughs) a lawsuit was that they claim the show violates their copyright because it portrays Sherlock Holmes in a very small part as having emotions. (laughs) (laughs) This is somehow unacceptable, defamatory. So even funnier, this is the most niche laws. This is why I'm studying law so that later on I can do nonsense things like this, like tiny little niche copyright. I might work for the Agatha Christie estate and go everybody, go Kenneth Branagh about how he made it look like Poirot enjoyed the water, which he doesn't. Anyway, so this issue, the issue they have was that they said emotional Sherlock Holmes doesn't fall within public domain because he was only ever portrayed as having emotions in a series of books published between 1923 and 1927 and those things are not in the public domain, therefore it violates copyright. Now, there is no outcome yet to that lawsuit, but I thought you'll enjoy the kind of situation that I found my a rabbit hole I found myself in just loving that stick back to the film the reason I think I like it the most is because I like mother-daughter films stories about mother-daughter-esque relationships so like Lady Bird and Gilmore Girls and um Miss Honey and Matilda in Matilda. I mean, the iconic quasi-mother-daughter relationship and Brave and it's just an awesome story about two awesome women finding each other and it's pretty feminist and pretty awesome so if you want a bit of a fun time watch Enola Holmes. That's a very good recommendation Tess. I saw the trailer for it the other night and I thought it looked great. I love Millie Bobby Brown in Stranger Things as well so I'm definitely putting it on my list. It's funny because we're really simpatico today and we had not planned to do this. My recommendation is also for a film that's also about mainly two women um, that's also about representation and a feminist oh, thing and this yes. is completely unplanned so it's like we're on the same wavelength. I wanted to recommend a film that came out last year but which I only just got around to seeing and that is a film called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. A print Principally female cast and crew, and it's directed by a woman called Celine Siema. It's set in Brittany, in the west of France, in the late 1700s. Now, it tells the story of a woman called Marianne, who is a 
painter from Paris, and she has been commissioned to travel to Brittany to paint the portrait of another woman called Eloise. And the painting will be sent off to a man in Milan, and if he approves of the way that Eloise looks, he will marry her. And this has all been arranged by uh, Eloise's mum. But there is a catch, and that is that Eloise doesn't know that this is the plan or that, that Marianne is coming to paint her. And so Marianne has to pretend to be a visitor and find a way to study <laughs> Eloise's features and then paint her without her ever knowing what's going on. This won the best screenplay at last year's Cannes Film Festival. It was nominated for the Palm Door and it won the Queer Palm and it's been a huge critical success. I really mean it when I say this word. I know it's a bit overused, but like it's a masterpiece. It's just absolutely amazing every single shot of the film looks like a painting Mm. and in that sense it reminded me a bit of the Stanley Kubrick film Barry Lyndon Mm. if you've ever seen that where every film looks like a painting Um, but that's basically the only way in which I could compare it to a Stanley Kubrick film or indeed any film that's made by a man because this film absolutely rejects the way that men make films about women and this is true in every single frame it's a very carefully and well thought through film. The director, Celine Siema, has called it a manifesto on the female gaze. And the film is really about how we look at women and how we objectify women and also how we seek to capture women, literally and metaphorically. And there are so many ways in which this uh, plays out in the film and, and in which I was really disoriented because I hadn't seen I haven't seen many films like this that are just so explicitly throwing the kind of male gaze on its head. And it does this in small ways and big ways right throughout the film. If you know the the work of Laura Mulvey, who is the woman who wrote about and coined the term the male gaze, you'll see it, you'll find a lot in this film. If you've ever heard of or read uh, Linda Nochlin's essay, which is called Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists, you'll see that resonate in this film. It made me think about Artemisia Gentileschi, who is a legendary female artist from the Baroque period. All of these women all of these ideas come together in this film and it's just extremely beautiful, very, very intelligent. There's so many layers to it and it's also romantic, but it portrays the, the lives of women who are romantically involved in a way that is really different and unique. So I think it's fabulous. It's like a really pure feminist vision, like really pure in a way that uh, we don't often see. And I get, give it an unabashed, totally um, um, fettered, very strong recommendation because I absolutely loved it. I thought you were going to say it's unstarable. Like you can't give it enough stars. I'm like, that's a good oh, review. I give it 10 stars out of five. <laughs> <laughs> they gave 110%. That's the 110% of the movie world. That's right. She tends to all of the little one percenters <laughs> in the film. <laughs> well, I'm going to put that on my list and maybe I'll be able to squeeze it in if there's a dud final and or on Sunday where there won't be any finals. Well, I'll watch Enola Holmes if you watch this and then we can exchange. All right, deal. Mine is, um, yeah, is, is much more undignified than what you've just described but I'm happy to level up in my life if you level down for me it's a deal (laughs) thank you Kate and Teddy for that fifth quarter how it has kept our hearts warmed and appreciate everything you've done for us um, especially this year Tess you've been really under the pump ladies we are almost about to get out of here is there any final business Lucy I've just got a little update that you know we mooted last week that the outer sanctum would buy the Batmobile Mm -hmm. unfortunately we beaten to it by a consortium of 
Hawks fans. So 32 of them put in $790.63 each and have bought a share of the Batmobile. What I love about this is that this group of people don't want to keep this for themselves. They want to share it with the people. I'm just going to read a quote here. Who knows how we might be able to use this to help clubs as far as their efforts to raise money in tough times. We're mindful that footy clubs aren't too flush at the local level at the moment after what's happened this year. So perhaps they'll be able to use some kind of visit to the Batmobile to raise funds for grassroots footy. I'm just going to say I've never played the I'm the number one ticket holder at Hawthorne card, but I'm willing to do it to get a photo opportunity of you ladies in that Batmobile. (laughs) There you go. On the Batmobile, we have failed. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, There was also some news. We're talking about sport and art, Lucy. Congratulations to Vincent Namajira who for the first time in 99 years, has become the first Indigenous artist to win the Archibald Prize for his portrait of Adam Goods. It is called Stand Strong for Who You Are. I'm sure you've seen it this week. It is beautiful. Congratulations to Adam and to Vincent. That is awesome. Thank you, ladies, for your time today. I love you so much. We are into the home stretch of the finals of what has been the most ridiculous season of all time. Best of luck if your team is playing in the finals. We will be cutting up tiny pieces of the phone book and throwing them up in our lounge room so we can't wait to see what you do to celebrate the finals there really is only one thing left to say Go Go